This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Resilience on Radio. Each week we talk with somebody making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher and me, Samuel Mann. Shane's not here tonight. We're doing another compilation. This time we are looking for ideas of a changing mindset and we have lined up 10 of the people that we have talked to over the last 10 years to explore what changing mindsets uh, means to oh. them. We're starting with a food artist, Emily Boltz. More systemically inclined than it is artifact inclined. So we're starting to look at the fact that we have created a host of products that depend on systems, and those systems have been very badly constructed. And therefore, as designers, and design is always about the discipline of order, we're having to reorder and reframe and redesign those systems for better consequences. And food is at heart at one of these issues around overconsumption. And so how do we start to look at that as human behavior and then reorganize it and reframe it? And America, for better or worse, is one of these spaces where there is a huge amount of overconsumption and a great inequality of that consumption as well. And along with that, why does that happen? I don't have any answers. I have some small theories of my own. Um, and much of that, I think, comes from actually still quite a closeness to a pioneer experience where one was eating and eating as much as you could because we were faced with wildness, with the unexpected um, notion that there might be death around the corner, there might be famine around the corner. And those behaviors are fundamentally in place through a pioneer culture, as with any pioneer culture. And I believe that some of that mindset is still in place and some of that created the food behaviors that we see in America today. Now, what to do about it? I think that having greater conversations, greater awareness is the beginning. And I think that's where we are right now. And in my own way, that's what things like the porcelain dust mask aim to do is they aim to begin a conversation and some kind of critical discourse around that space. Um, and working in food, I think that there's also an opportunity to to have that discourse be joyful and be playful. So it's not just finger wagging. I don't believe people change when we wag our fingers at each other. Um, but we do begin to change when we're in a positive mindset and when we move forward in a positive space. And I think that food and, and very much so the dining experience helps do that. Emily Boltz there talking about the use of joyfulness as a way of engaging people in awareness and conversations. Next up, Russell Norman, who we talked to in 2011, changing from fossil fuels. And our dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, making the transition away from fossil fuels, I think, is going to be one of the hardest things 
um, that we do in our generation. Uh, and it, it, it really can't be underestimated how difficult it's going to be. Are you getting... This is a sort of thing that I imagine you'd be promoting. Does it get traction? Uh, I think that there's some... Uh, people have started to appreciate the price of petrol... Um, so I, th- I think at, at that level, um, I- if you think about the economics of the country for a minute and you realise we're spending $7 billion a year on imported oil and petroleum products, um, that does give you pause to thought if you're thinking about what a sustainable economy in New Zealand would look like. Of course, this is up um, from 3 to $4 billion. I mean, it's basically doubled in the last five years. Um, so it is a huge strategic um, problem for the New Zealand economy. Uh, unfortunately, the government really doesn't take this seriously, but um, some people are starting to. Why not? Uh, well, because, you know, our civilization for the last 100, 200 years has entered the fossil fuel era, um, and people now think that that's normal and it will last forever. And they don't really think very clearly about uh, the limitations on fossil fuel supplies. But they'd like to think that they're rational. They would. <laughs> so, so when presented with an argument like, you know, this is in the, the strategic interests, why is that not taken up as, oh, yes, of course, we'll do that now? It's, it's a good question, um, and, and I don't really have um, a clear answer to it, to be honest, but I, I think it is about being locked in to a mindset um, that we've inherited from those that have come before us. It's, you know, it, it, it is just the, the, f- the fundamental mindset about particularly oil in the last hundred, you know, well, last hundred years, really. Um, the, the, the oil mindset is, is quite deep, and, and people really struggle with it. You know, so that's the transition that we're trying to get through. Is it deeper than that? Is it a consumption mindset? I think that there's no question we've all that you know we've all uh, been kind of swamped by the consumption mindset. Um, the, the only thing I'd say is that uh, you know there's we, kind of getting into the argument around growth and all that. Um, there are some parts of our economy we need to grow, and there's some parts of our economy we need to shrink. Um, so you know. Uh, there, there is going to be a growing sector in our economy. It's just that there also need to be some shrinking sectors, and that's the challenge. Next up, Dominic Hess, whose book Regenerative Design is on my must-read list for all my students. doesn't have as big an impact, uh, mainly from a cost and ecological, um, environmental perspective, water, waste, and so forth. And after that, I went and uh, was a consultant in Europe for several years and after my 333rd grade day in Amsterdam I was like that's it I'm going back to <laughs> Melbourne um, I wrote to a friend who I did my masters with and he said well you can come do a PhD for me if you like and I was like oh I don't want to do a PhD but okay it's a job and I like teaching so I went back to RMIT and I did a PhD in architecture so um, that's that's kind of the story of the education so you've done all the qualifications in all the disciplines Pretty much. <laughs> now, I don't know. Um, art, I think art and music I still need. <laughs> and what, were you, what were you looking for? So uh, it, I, I can't say there was a plan, okay? So this is, this is me. In just, hindsight. <laughs> in hindsight. I, I, in my undergrad, I understood natural systems. In my master's, I understood uh, human systems and engineered systems and our ability to be ingenious and intuitive and so forth. And in my PhD, I learnt the power of creativity and the design process to bring nature and human wisdom together to solve problems. 
that's a pretty organised hindsight. Mm. Well, I've had to tell this story a few times, <laughs> also to myself, <laughs> as my students shake their heads at me. <laughs> you said you were bitten by the sustainability bug. What was it that got you? Uh, a walk in the Blue Mountains. A walk in the Blue Mountains and just feeling the power of nature as a lyrebird sort of ran across my path and I'm just thinking of how wonderful nature is and how much I wanted to be part of the positive future for nature. It's interesting when you say that that when you, when you when we talk about sort of systems thinking and that ecological mindset and so on, it's very much about humans being part of of nature. Yet we do have this problem that we've also got a there's a nature out there somewhere in a nice little preserve. In your case, in, in the, the Blue Mountains, so we still do value that. Let's call it pristine for the moment thing, but we also need to get beyond that nature out there somewhere. Mm. How do you reconcile those two? So, firstly, I think we are nature. Um, our power stations are nature. Our universities are nature. Uh, this carpet and this chair is nature. It's just we haven't been trained to think of ourselves and the stuff we interact with as nature. I think that dichotomy of um, nature over there where we can control it and manage it, manage it is very much part of our history and the history of how we survived. You know, coming out of the jungles, nature was a danger. Uh, in the um, mid-dark uh, ages and so forth, in, our, in the squalor of cities, nature was a danger. You know, there were the typhoid and so forth. And to start protecting people from nature, we needed to put nature out there. We needed to put our streams into pipes. Uh, we needed to... Um, isolate our buildings from the outside um, so that our, our people uh, could have a consistent temperature and therefore be productive and so forth. We were seeing all of that and not get sick and as, as part of how we progressed as a human race. I think we're now starting to see the limitations of that in that we're having all sorts of impacts on nature and um, nature isn't another because if there is no fresh air uh, if there is no fresh water, if we don't have soil to grow our food, uh, if we, uh, we're starting to really see the connection that we as humans have and need to nature, if we see it as out there, we won't look after it and uh, we as a species won't survive. And so this is the shift in the conversation that I'm starting to see, um, that we are an integral part of nature. I've, over the last year, learnt an amazing lesson from our Indigenous elders uh, in Australia. They actually believe that nature is better off because of them, and we are better off because of nature. Imagine that. Uh, many of my students think the world would be better off if we just got rid of people, you know, the, the, the seals and the whales and, and everything else. And I go, no. The world is better off because of us, because we have art, we have music, we have intuition. We can take this world to a whole new level, that nature in its slow uh, evolutionary processes um, can, never, can never have that level of, of integration, intuition, um, creativity that we bring. We talk about us as part of nature uh, uh, being a co-evolution, but the danger of that is that each generation unwittingly accepts a lower baseline we think that where we grew up in the mountains you walked in that was nature that was some sort of natural starting point and then we degrade it while we're alive and then the next generation thinks that that's the the starting point so it's kind of like it's it's degrading in front of us but we don't notice 
Really interesting question because within the field of that I've now shifted to, so I, I came from an idea of sustainability and we must protect the world. Um, humans are bad. We need to pull up our socks, get, swallow the responsibility um, pill and start being better behaved people within this world. And I realised that I was getting absolutely no traction. Students were falling asleep. They weren't turning up to lectures. Uh, there was no creativity or ability to innovate. Uh, they were really just trying to um, toe the line. And I'll get back to your point about nature. Um, and then I shifted that conversation to one where through some, some real slap in the face uh, around where I realised how, how little effect the bad news stories have on the ability for people to be part of a positive future. And so I um, switched the conversation to the potential we have as humans as part of the world. And that potential is to keep contributing to the capacity of the place to thrive. And so rather than continuing to degrade across each generation and then expecting that that's the baseline um, so New Zealand is now beautiful because it's green and got lots of grass on it. Um, but if we look back 300 years before white man came here, there was no grass and there were these complex multi-layered forests and so forth. But we expect that this is now the beautiful New Zealand. Uh, I know that um, places like Raglan and, and other places are starting to think about how do we bring back that past capacity? But interestingly, on, on another project I'm working on, it's not just about that conservation mindset of bringing back the past, but it's also an acceptance that we as humans have had an impact. And what does the new future look like? What does thriving in the future look like, uh, given the impact that we've had? I don't think there is any place on Earth that humans haven't touched. And given that, what does the new normal look like, where it is about thriving ecosystems and human systems? And so for the project that uh, I'm working on uh, in Victoria, we have a degraded ecosystem where salt water has um, basically got rid of all of the natural um, bush and created a monoculture of salt bush or just plain salt on earth. And we're adapting that to be both salt marsh and then through... Um, bringing, um, supporting that salt marsh, which is evolving to uh, strengthen and, and evolve its capacity, creating a buffer so that we can bring back the fresh water systems that were, have been affected by that salt. And so we're strengthening both the old ecosystem that was there, but also acknowledging that we're in a transition to a, a salt water system and working with that to strengthen its capacity and potential. Dominic Hess there talking about how we need to reconsider our role as humans as part of nature in creating a positive future from nature. We bring creativity and innovation to do that. And from that, we have the potential as humans to contribute the capacity to thrive. Next up, Fiona Clements. Right now, it's the whole Sustainable Dreaded City project um how, how can i make that happen and what can i uh, what can i get how can i get this community to be more connected and visible and having conversations you said before about it showing what's possible of new way of living mm. how many people do we need to convince or do you need to convince probably about 25 percent, i reckon then it'll kind of just snowball from there that high <laughs> i don't know that's just something i made up yeah <laughs> I think you have things like the transition town movement where they say it's not about you know telling people that what 
what they should be doing. Yeah. Let's just get on and do it. Yeah, showing them it's possible, absolutely. And so, you're yeah. doing that in yes. terms of the, the fashion. How can you scale that? Can you, is, uh, it, would you rec- uh, Do you think, without wanting to impose your model on other, other people, do you think you've found a model that could be applied in other Absolutely, areas? I do. I really do think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've learned to be low waste in my life as well through through being zero waste in my practice, um, and I'm not zero waste in my life because it's just too impossible at the moment. And I do have to live slightly conveniently. I still buy plastic things occasionally, but that's not every day. Yeah. If someone was going to try following in your footsteps, what would you recommend? Um. Go and intern with someone who's doing that, so that you can learn learn from them. Yeah, and, and they they will like. I love sharing what I'm doing with people, and love giving them the opportunity to experiment and take a bit of risk because you don't really get to do that a lot. Of, when you're learning at tech, you just you kind of got this prescribed thing that you've got to do. But if you get to go and because that's how I learned was just doing it by myself and experimenting. Yeah, being is it, risky. Is it big concepts, a mindset shift? Is it? A whole lot of technical things that you need to to learn how to do. What where, where's the where's the big questions or the big things you have to learn? There's a little bit of technical stuff, I think, but it, it's shifting. I think with zero waste, it's about shifting the perception of what fashion, what fashion, and I'm ear quoting here with my fingers. Fashion, I can see. It's just <laughs> what fashion actually is. Is it fashion, or are we just trying to make clothing for people? You know, are we just trying to? That's the first form of shelter for us. So, is that what we're trying to achieve? The needs? Are we trying to? You know, or is it we're just in want? Are we still wanting? You know, I think that's fashion is very want based. I'm very much focused on needs. And here is G Wang, artful design. Ethics is the way we might be thinking of ethics today. Like certainly, like we have these like narratives of like technology and ethics. Like how again, we kind of we often gravitate towards a how do we not do harm with the things we make. This goes back to, I think the ethical question in artful design is like how do we, how do we do good? What does that even mean? And you know how do we want to live with our technologies? Right. And uh, I think that's, and I think that last question is, I can, I think of that as both a ethical question and it goes back to an aesthetic question. Like, how do we want to be in the world? How do we want to, how, how do we live with our technologies? How do we want to live with ourselves? And in that sense, I think you, the overlap between ethics and aesthetics is is. Is fairly blurred. How do you engage your students in this sort of discussion? Do they roll their eyes and here it goes again? Uh, I don't know. I think sometimes they probably <laughs> roll their eyes and I probably give them a lot of reasons to roll their eyes. Um, but I think they, I think we try to ask a lot of questions. In fact, we ask, ask a lot of questions about questions that we're being, being asked, right? I think we live in a time when things are developing so quickly that not only do we not have like most of the answers we actually don't have like most of the questions right we got to figure out what are the right questions to ask and when questions are posed to us like we should before we rush to answering them we got to really stop and think well is that really the best question to ask and are the terms under which the questions are asked are these terms the right ones the appropriate ones and the fair ones 
to actually use. So I think we do the best, you know, the, the best we can, like, try to get to the root of these questions and then to apply the same kind of mindset to actually designing things. And we question the things we design also really as deeply as we can. Back to, you know, well, really the deeper you go, the simpler things get. It's like, why did you design this thing? Why did you design this thing the way you did? And those may sound like, you know, kind of hard to answer questions. Actually, if, if you figure out what your values are from the get-go, those become actually, you streamline the answer to those questions. Uh, but they also become more interesting. So, so we really get to this, this, we talk about all of this at every level, from the very lowest level, which is like look, feel, the tactility of things, to things like structural, how is it put together, to interactive, how does it work, to emotional, psychological, how does it make you feel, what, is, what, is, what do you get out of this emotionally, uh, to the social, to I would say the more ethical slash societal. And I think, well, this is actually re- re- literally a page out of Artful <laughs> Design is that you know, Artful Design would say good design m- must consider all of these dimensions. Can you tell in the finished product? C- can you pick up a product or use an app and know that that's been designed from a values basis? I, I would say absolutely. I think even if we can't quite articulate it right off, we, we, you can kind of... You can kind of feel it, but then upon, I think, a, 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 a more sustained critical reflection on something, yeah, it's it becomes almost unmistakable. If you, I mean, right now, I think we are not feeling too good about social media in our world. And I think we feel a grand misalignment between, you know, kind of how we want to use these tools versus how these tools are actually hurting us, in a sense, to, to using them. And I, I think there is a critical reflection to be had there, many critical reflections on what that misalignment actually is. And from there, it's pretty easy to see that something like, well, hey, Facebook is a little too easy, but I'm going to use them anyway. Too easy a target is that, yeah, I, I think I can give you kind of critical reflections on why Facebook was never designed for our well-being in mind, right? Instead, it seemed to be a tool that was, the value was that we could be engaged so that that engagement could be monetized. The value is actually very clear. The value is not my well-being, right? And and you can talk about, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of times like we talk about the ethics of Facebook, right? We, we actually focus more on the unintended consequences. I'm going to, like, I think it's also important to look at what Facebook is. Like, even if you were to, for the moment, set aside the unintended consequences. Like, you can ask, is the... The product as is intended, what is it really intending to do? And so from there, I think you can absolutely see, at least have a pretty good idea of what the values really were. And you may, you may be wrong, but I think every product, you know, is going to at least give you a sense of what it's really about. And Can you retrofit values? In what sense? Like How do they fix Facebook? Oh, pfft. I I think it might be situational. I don't want to say never, but you know, I mean, with how do we face fix Facebook? I think we shut it down. But it's doing lots of good. It's, you know, well, I'm the, connected to, to cousins and things. 
that, that I, I would have lost contact with but otherwise. I would, I would ask, is that really good? You know, people use that argument and be like, hey, I'm connected to my cousins I don't ever see, to high school friends I would never otherwise talk to. The best answer I've heard to that was from uh, actually a graduate student at, at Karma at Stanford. And she said, you know, sometimes it's good to, to say goodbye. And also the people that you don't bother to keep in touch with otherwise, except their Facebook, like, why don't you just call them up? Write a letter. And if Facebook is really your only last lifeline to keep a relationship on some kind of, like, life support, like, is that really the way that – I mean, and it gets back to the nature of Facebook, right? So – and you can say, yeah, Facebook has had a lot of positive, you know, kind of like, you know, just – disaster response or other things. I would call those actually also unintended consequences <laughs> as much as the harmful ones. So I think at the end of the day, I'm all about looking at Facebook for what it's really, what its affordances actually are. And, but not just the affordances. It's kind of like the aesthetics of its use. What kind of a life, how do we feel about a life in which we use Facebook as a primary communication tool? I, for one, tell you, I feel pretty bad. Like, I'm still on Facebook, but I, I think I've already proclaimed on Facebook itself, I'm not here for social. I'm here to, for, to promote things like concerts and to forward stupid memes. I do social elsewhere, right? And that is my usage for Facebook, cause, and I, I, I reject Facebook as a social network because I think that's, that's not what it's good at. Right, and maybe good for other things like promotion. I'm, I think it's more like a, a advertising platform, which of course it is. Um, so, I, I think you one would really have to go back to ask what are the values of a social tool for me that I would really want, and different people might have different answers to that. But I think that question is something that we might not be asking enough, and and so. I think in Facebook's case specifically, back to your to your question, can can values be retrofitted? I would say like maybe, but I don't see Facebook as being willing or capable of retrofitting. I don't even I wouldn't know how they could retrofit it. I think there are I, I subscribe to the point of view that there are there are thresholds beyond which a company or an entity is beyond redemption. Certainly a company. Individuals, I, I like to keep faith in, in people. I, I, I'd like to believe that anyone who is still has still an agent has some possibility for redemption. I just have to believe that, but I don't believe that for companies. And I think some companies, well, quite frankly, just need to die because I think that. Gee, Wang, they're talking about how we don't know most of the questions, let alone the answers, but the clue lies in values and considering both the intended and unintended consequences with a free rant about Facebook. Next up, Oliver Milliner. And part of the CSR manager's role is to make sure that the program around workers' rights and support across the whole supply chain, uh, tier one suppliers, is, um, is, meets the standards. Must, uh, how many of them? There must be lots. Yeah, so we have, because the supply chain is very complicated, yeah. um, and you know, really our materials and supply chain team are like experts and gurus, gurus in the space, but we have raw materials through to like mills and manufacturing as well, so this is mainly focused on the, the, manu the manufacturing stage as well, but obviously we, within, the, within that scope is going to be included on like materials and where we, mm -hmm. where we source yeah. our materials as well. Um, but ha having the FLA, which accredited and verified that the 
the program met the 10 principles was a huge validation that uh, our program was 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 meeting global best practice yeah, yeah there's, there's some amazing stories I'm <laughs> just kind of yeah. lightly touching on yeah, absolutely. the work that goes on there but um, I, would, I, would I, I would recommend people to go and look at that your sustainability yeah, yeah, reports yeah, yeah. they really are very good Steve Clare in London works for a major charity helping communities take control of their own assets we talk about doing things differently years old or whatever you, you don't just keep using it for what it used to be used at you look at using it for all sorts of different things. That might include business startups. It might include uh, arts, cultural things. It's about doing things differently. It's about getting local people involved, drawing on their ideas. Um, again, jumping sideways a bit. I think one of the challenges we've got, certainly in this country, I dare say it's the same in, uh, in New Zealand, Government policy tends to be focused on, on deprivation. It tends to be focused on what's wrong with the community, um, you know, a deficit gap model. I think you need to turn that around in you know, what's called asset-based community development, ABCD. You, your starting point has got to be what are the assets within the community, the people, the skills, the networks, etc. And in my experience... Every community, no matter how challenged or how deprived, always has a huge, rich seam of potential, of creativity. If you keep telling people there are ways to space, if you keep telling people that they have nothing to offer, if you keep telling people that they're a failure, um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, One of my previous jobs, I worked for a, a training agency in East London, uh, 80% of our learning group it was, a, it was <coughs> ironically it was a women's only training project Ironic, um, 80% of our users were from black and minority ethnic communities um, the majority were lone parents and so many of them came in the door with the attitude you know, I'm a failure I've got no control over my life I can't do anything about it that mindset you can actually turn around in 48 hours and once people start recognising that they can do something about their lives, that they do have choices, that you always have choices, um, sometimes it was remarkable. You could literally see somebody just growing like a, a flower bursting into, into bloom. And I think the same thing applies to communities. Um, if people don't think they can do something, they won't try. If people think that they can do something... They will, and that's why it's so important for us to, to link people up, to link communities up. Um, many of our members are extraordinary people, but they were ordinary people until they became extraordinary by doing something, by taking action, by refusing to accept no as an answer. I was speaking at a public meeting on Friday, and I, I gave the example. With many of our members, if you built a 12-foot wall in front of them, they'd go and get a bulldozer and smash it down or they'd dig under it or they'd go over the top or they'd find a way around the side what they wouldn't do is just give up and go home and I think if you have that attitude in life and I think if you have people in communities with that attitude that we're not going to accept no that we do have opportunities, we do have potentials we can do things better than they're being done at the moment 
we understand our community better than those who are administering goods and services and indeed I was going to say managing the economy mismanaging the economy then you've got a potential for change and that happens first and foremost at the neighbourhood level then I think you can generalise it up into some of the bigger challenges Presumably these communities, these neighbourhoods do need to work though with government at local and Absolutely Absolutely Um, Yeah, um, one of our criteria for membership uh, which I mentioned earlier is that we'd expect our members to work in partnership with public sector and indeed private sector and other third sector organisations I don't think anyone has the answer or any one sector has the answer. What I do think is that the paternalistic, top-down, system-driven, scale approach that the public sector has um, is no longer fit for purpose and needs to change. I think the public sector needs to work in partnership, in genuine partnership, and often in the past where that word's been used, it's not been an equal partnership. And I think it's difficult for the public sector sometimes to let go. It's made more difficult, by the way, central government uh, monitors and evaluates um, local government. The the future has to be a way of working together, and part of that is about local government facilitating, creating space, creating opportunities, and then actually stepping back to let people get on with it. You don't do things for people. You create a situation where people can do things for themselves. That's a much more sustainable approach. I'm thinking about letting go and the role role of of place, and, and that led me to thinking about heritage. And that could be could be used to your advantage in our, I was on the settled Carlisle Ra- Railway yeah. the other building yeah. and that's very much about the community saying we're going to take ownership of this this thing and they've set up trusts to do the different different bits but, but in that case the heritage aspects is what they particularly want to save but you don't necessarily want the the heritage aspects of, of a library so if a community is trying to say okay we want our library and we want it to not change do you try and work with them to to get them to go wider than that we want it exactly like it is now or is that okay I've I've actually seldom come across people who do say we want everything to be preserved in aspect I think that's sometimes a bit of a myth Um, there's certainly been a backlash to a lot of places have started to look increasingly the same. There's a McDonald's in you know, every community, etc., etc. Um, and I think there's been a backlash. People don't want to live in a place which is like everywhere else. People want to live in a place which is unique, which they can relate to. Um, the people are important, but so are buildings, so are land and building. The people do care very, very deeply, often, about about land, about village squares or parks, and about buildings that, you know, perhaps they went to school in a, in a, in a, in a building 30, 40 years ago, and now local authorities closing it down. Lots of our members have taken over schools that were going to be closed, for example, and turned them into uh, community hubs, business centres, that sort of stuff. Um, yes, there are some people who, and as I say, I think this is possibly 
a thread with the community-owned library, or a volunteer-managed library. We just want to keep it how it was with books on the shelves. I wouldn't say that's sustainable long-term. I think most people recognise that you can't keep things the same. You need to, to change. Um, the issue for me is who's controlling that change, who drives that change, who decides what change is important, who decides what change is right for that community, who decides who's involved in making those decisions. Um, and if those decisions are made democratically, if there's widespread engagement, and if priorities are discussed and debated, then, um, yeah, change is fine. And change... Do sometimes people get it wrong? And I'm thinking about... I've just travelled up through through Yorkshire and Lancashire and I'm looking at all those old mill buildings which yeah. have mostly, from what I can see, been turned into the sorts of places you've been talking about. Yeah. If a community said, you know, we want to take on this, this massive structure and we're going to turn it into this thing and we're going to fund it out of the proceeds from the coffee shop, we're going to stick on the corner of it. <laughs> How do you... Do you have to sometimes rein people in? Yes, absolutely. When we first started walk, working around the community asset transfer agenda, I, I keep coming up with these, another slogan, uh, we ran a series of workshops called Viability, Not Liability. People often think, oh, I'm going to get a building. That's, a, that's an asset. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's a liability. It's a white elephant. And one of the reasons that we work with people is to make sure that they have a realistic business plan. Some buildings are, to be blunt, never, ever, ever going to be viable um, without public subsidy. So it's really important that people are realistic, that they look through um, the different options. Again, in our experience, particularly in the north of England, where property values are, are lower, if someone takes over an old school, for example, or an old a former town hall and refurbishes it, um, it may well cost, say, £5 million. And at the end of that process, the building is worth £3 million. Um, that's a fact. That's something you have to understand and work with. And it's, it's still doable. You will need... Um, investors who understand and appreciate that steve clare talking about rethinking deficit models and looking at asset-based community development and ordinary people becoming extraordinary by refusing to take no for an answer and recognizing that we can do things better when we have genuine partnerships paulo cruz is sustainability manager in Glasgow. I then had to do the things I was encouraging others to do. And, and that's, oh. the, that's where the passion came in, I think. How long have you been here? In post as sustainability officer, seven years. When you started, did it seem like it was going to be an easy job or did it seem like an enormous mountain? Where, where, how did it sort of like arrive in terms of a vision and a challenge? It was pretty clear. I was tasked with um, formalising the implementation of an environmental management system 
that we as an institution are rightly very proud of. Um, it's called EcoCampus, um, but in essence it's ISO 14001. And as we collected data that helped us understand our impact and opportunities, um, the opportunities revealed themselves. So it's like climbing up a, a mountain in mist and fog and it clears and then all of a sudden the magnitude of the task ahead of you it revealed and then you get to the peak and there's more. <laughs> but not view from the top. When you get there, perhaps we haven't got there yet. To stretch your metaphor, have there been moments where you've been able to stop and look at the view though? Yeah, so this year we've, we, so every year we calculate our carbon footprint. We're required to do so, so for the Scottish Government. And whilst I wasn't expecting a positive story, uh, the numbers were, despite some, some changes in trend, are really positive. And when you reflect on those numbers and the conversations we have with colleagues, you know, there's, there's, a very subtle change in people's attitude and, and mindset and it's all kind of gaining momentum which is pretty awesome I love that notion of the fog clearing only so that we can see the magnitude of the task ahead of us here is a software engineer Birgit Pedzenstadler what I want the software system to be about then I can decide to make a software system that is a completely new solution that helps people to form a community and to do something together instead of making small efficiency steps if the solution was not the best one in the first place. So my favorite example, and um, all those of you car lovers out there, please don't hate me for it, but we have put a lot of resources into making car engines more and more efficient. And that is, a, in, in itself, that can be a good thing. But if I compare the efficiency of that or how much I was able to improve that efficiency with a car-sharing solution, where do I save more emissions? If I make that motor 1% more energy efficient or if I make 20 people use 5 cars instead of 20 cars to get from A to B, then I can probably save a lot more emissions. So that's one simple example uh, where I say, well, optimizing that one solution further might yield less benefit than going for a completely different solution. So there is a, certainly a role for the software engineer to be thinking at that level. And also the software engineer in the computing development process is probably the person who's best positioned to be thinking in a systems perspective. Because so. software engineering is kind of, by definition, a systems view. Yes. At the same time, I think we software engineers often don't step back enough. We're thinking too much in terms of how can I break this problem down into manageable parts and solve those instead of taking a step back and trying to apply a systems thinking approach and trying to look at the bigger picture. So we're more in the mindset of decomposing things into smaller pieces until we can handle them. And that's not necessarily the most promising way for sustainability. 
And last up for today, we have Emily Munyahi, who works for a social enterprise training program in Scotland. Some of the the um, the kind of outcomes that they've had through it, and not, and I enjoy learning from them. And I think that could influence what we do here in Scotland, and vice versa. So, as it moves internationally, does it make the things that people are doing in Scotland? seem like first world, first world problems in that negative sense? You see, that's that's not negative to me though because I think your 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 problem is your problem. If if you've got if you've got something that's upsetting you or affecting you in your life, it doesn't I wouldn't compare it to what someone else is going through because you can only experience what you experience. So um, I think if that's what what matters to you, you tackle it. I think if young people start choosing an issue that's really important to them and they explore it, and then they hear about someone on the other side of the world who's tackling something and they get inspired by that and decide to broaden out their their thoughts, then great. But if they don't and they still want to focus on their local area and tackle something that is that matters to them, then I don't I don't think I don't see a problem with that. Bigger picture, if we look at sustainability, social inequity, social justice. It could quite easily be argued that business has got us into this mess. Are we putting too much expectation on kids to expect them to business the way out of this mess? Um, well, that's where social enterprise comes in. So that that's why if they are doing enterprise activity in school, we would work with them to to make that shift towards it being social enterprise so that even even if the business that gets set up is not doesn't work um that they've still got that kind of social mindset that the activity that they're doing is um has a positive effect somewhere um and that the business that they're doing no one's getting rich from it um that it that it is all you know profits are going back into and, and addressing the social issue, um, so no, I don't think it's too much to expect. I think it's, um, I think it's a, a really good opportunity for them to explore that in quite a safe area, quite a safe space. We want the software system to be about. So there we have it. There are ten of the guests we've had on Sustainable Lens, taking different approaches to changing mindset. What always amazes me when I look through these compilations is just how varied the things that people are doing all under the banner of making the world a better place. You can find the entire conversations with all of the people we had on today uh, by looking at sustainablelens.org. We've heard from Emily Boltz, Russell Norman, Dominique Hess, Fiona Clements, G. Wang, Oliver Milliner, Steve Clare, Paulo Cruz, Birgit Pedzenstadler, and Emily Munyahi. That was Sustainable Lands. I'm Samuel Mann. We hope you enjoyed the show. At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High-quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. 
For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.